The Responsible Investing Podcast by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Welcome to the Aberdeen Standard Investments Responsible Investing Podcast. I am Amanda Young, your host for today. Now, these podcasts are designed to hear from a range of guests on various responsible investment issues, and my guest today is David Smith. Now, David is a senior investment director in our equities business out in Singapore. David, a warm welcome and thank you for joining us from the other side of the world. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. David has long been involved in the responsible investment industry and has led our efforts on ESG integration, all things governance in the Asian equity team since 2011. Now, prior to this, David led Asian corporate governance research at the Institutional Shareholder Services, or ISS. Many of you will know the proxy research provider. Having obtained his PhD in corporate governance and an MSc in corporate strategy from the University of Nottingham, David has lived in Singapore since 2005 after a six-month stint in China. Now, I learned a little bit about his visit to China. And while he was there, David actually learned Mandarin, but he claims he's forgotten most of this. Now, his time in China was interesting, <laughs> traveling the world, and he once took a train ride for 24 hours on the cheapest train fare, known as hard seats, sitting with the construction workers who were returning home for Golden Week. Now, these workers took delight in pointing out the Chinese countryside and clearly very proud of their country. Now, living across the other side of the world, David does miss the odd thing about the UK, and he did confide to me, in particular, scotch eggs and old, <laughs> smelly local pubs. So welcome again, David. Um, Thank you. Perhaps, perhaps we can start by hearing your views on the changes you have seen over the past couple of decades in the responsible investment market. And more broadly, I'm keen to get your personal perspective on how the Asian markets have evolved over this time. Well, thanks for the question. And again, thanks for having me. When you say uh, the last couple of decades, it puts into perspective the amount of time <laughs> I've been working in this space. But when I look back to uh, starting my career through a couple of internships, as it was just at the turn of the century, we had uh, SRI functions, uh, asset managers, and it was a heart of desks around the city of London, but it was uh, not really as integrated as we see now. I think that's fair for many asset managers. The last 20 years is this tremendous acceleration of interest in ESG. And although that was uh, broadly linear, I suppose, for the first 10, 12 years after the early 2000s, it's accelerated now and it's been somewhat parabolic since, uh, <laughs> since the financial crisis and certainly yeah. during, since COVID. And the same is true of Asia as well. So we've seen uh, strong interest in sustainability, strong interest in, in issues around ESG, and it's accelerated to a phenomenal pace now. And it's, it's fantastic. It's really been wonderful to see. ESG integration has been a core part of our investment process for some time now. But in your view, what does good ESG management look like when you are speaking with Asian companies? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We try and boil it down to a fairly simple ideology. And that's when you speak to management of a company and you ask them, what's your time horizon? How are you managing this business for the long term, what would happen to prevent you from succeeding over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Inevitably, those questions result in an answer around either an E or an S or a G issue. And now the person sitting across the table from you may not necessarily recognize these as E or S or G issues. But ultimately, if you take a, a time horizon of longer than a few quarters, the major material risks and opportunities for a company tend to be around issues of ERS or G, whether it's getting the right people in, being able to retain the right people, whether it's these big changing global themes around um, climate change or renewables or a circular economy. You know, these are the big topics we discuss. 
So I don't think those are tremendously different for Asian companies and companies elsewhere. But certainly what you would look for for management is recognition of these issues and, and a response to these issues and an understanding they need to be considered when managing a company for a long term. It's interesting because you started your career in corporate governance, which used to be quite separate from some of the softer environmental and social issues, which have largely arisen from the ethical investment market. Over time, there's obviously been a convergence between these issues and corporate governance. And myself, having been around for some time as well, and looked at both sustainable investment issues and corporate governance issues in the past, I really do understand both the differences as well as the need for bringing these things together. I'm keen to get your view as to whether you feel environmental and social issues are as important as corporate governance issues. Yeah, this is one of those questions that is a, is almost seen as a trick question, really, depending on who <laughs> asks you the question. You know, is governance as important as uh, ENS or is ES as important as G? I mean, ultimately, they deal with slightly different things. So governance is around the way decisions are made, in whose interest decisions are made, how these decisions are, are monitored and, and what mm. actions are taken. So that involves the relationship between shareholders and the board and the relationship between the board and, and the management. And that is you know, how I originally came to this space, which was through uh, pursuing interest in agency theory. The ENS issues relate to the operations of the company and, and the way it works. So they're you know, as important as the way that, that a firm pursues manufacturing excellence or manages its balance sheet or looks at supply chain. So you know, these are two equally important facets of the business. It's really difficult to find the company that has excellence in ENS and, and a very poor track record in G and vice versa. So uh, you know, they're both equally important and touch on slightly different facets of the business that we want to look at. David, you are well known as a corporate governance expert, and you've obviously got a real particular expertise on the Asian market. I'd love to hear your view on what you think the biggest corporate governance issues are in Asia at the moment, and your take on the cultural differences between the regions of the world. In particular, what do you think is unique to the Asian region? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're often asked about what makes Asia different or unique from the rest of the world. There are certain idiosyncrasies of Asia, but there's a lot that makes Asia similar to the vast majority of, of the rest of the world and, and certainly the rest of capital markets. So the thinking about Asia is that you have a large number of firms that are either state-owned or family-owned, and yeah. you have issues around family management, and that leads to issues around potentially around related party transactions, issues mm -hmm. around succession planning, and you know, how you pass that business on to the third generation, and the cliche is it's you know, the first generation makes the money, second generation oversees the money, and the third generation loses the money. He loses so we, it, yes. <laughs> we, we spend a lot of time with companies trying to make sure that they're prepared for that third generation. But there's also a lot, a lot of similarities. I mean, if you look at the overwhelming number of businesses around the world are family owned. So we think of this sort of atomized shareholder base um, that we see in you know, S&P 500 or FTSE 100 or whatever. And that may be a large part of capital markets in terms of market cap. But in terms of number of businesses around the world, the vast majority are family owned or potentially state owned. So there's some cultural idiosyncrasies that you need to be aware of when, when, you're, when you're working in Asia, sure. But actually, there's a lot that unites Asia and Europe and, and other parts of the world in terms of the way these families work and the challenges that they're facing. Now, I'm quite keen to get on to maybe some specific ESG topics, and perhaps I can kick off with asking your view on China's net zero target for 2060. Obviously, climate change is a big issue. Lots of people talking about net zero. Really keen to get your view on that. Yeah, this was a, an incredible proclamation that we saw last week, a couple of weeks ago, around China reaching uh, net zero by 2060 and peak emissions by 2030 and potentially sooner. And it was a, a couple of 
very brief remarks as part of a speech that was more broadly around COVID. So you know, we saw these remarks that came in and everyone sat up and took notice because this is quite a, an incredible statement. Obviously, China is, is well known for having environmental issues as it's developed over the last 20, 30 years. What's also well known is the leadership that we've seen on uh, renewable energy in China. So you know, leading the world in technologies uh, around solar and wind, uh, as well as high-speed rail, for example. So you know, China's put a marker in the sand to say that we're going to do this. And I think when you see those kind of proclamations and, and when you see the technological capabilities that are market and the speed at which these technologies are, are progressed and developed and implemented, it gives you a lot of confidence that they're going to throw a lot towards reaching this target, which gives you a lot of positivity in terms of the outlook for the world. And you've seen the science around what this could mean for climate change, but also it throws up a lot of really interesting investment opportunities for us as well in terms of you know, where we may want to look as fund managers, given that gives you uh, visibility uh, out and you know, several years as to the kind of things that China is going to be focusing on. And I think it's really interesting to have seen that political shift over the last decade and, you know, even from when the Paris Agreement was reached. So I think it's a really exciting time. Another hot topic at the moment are the sustainable development goals. You know, they, they have been around for a while. We're a third of the way into that 15 year period. Now, the SDGs have obviously captured the imagination of both public and investors, but progress against them has been relatively slow. Do you feel that these goals are as relevant for your regions as other parts of the world? And perhaps you can talk about how you look at them as an investor. Yeah, it's a really great question. There's lots there. So when you look at the SDGs and you look at the kind of targets and indicators that sit beneath each of these goals, these are extremely relevant for regions like Asia and, and emerging markets as well. When you look at the issues around financial inclusion, access to healthcare, access to water and sanitation, then these are real tangible everyday issues that we see in many markets uh, and countries around Asia. So yeah, there's a very clear recognition, I think, that these are relevant for Asia. And I think what's exciting now is the focusing of private capital. And you mentioned investors' uh, interest in this, is the focusing of private capital, both in terms of the end client and fund managers really looking to mobilize capital to achieve these uh, goals. So I think we've seen this acceleration of interest in ESG. At the same time, you've seen this movement away from minimizing negative impact, if you like, and that's you know, the early days of ESG that you talked about, towards maximizing positive impact in, in capital markets. So that's really exciting. And I certainly don't see any sign of, of that abating. I mean, there was research out the other day that said that we may be 40 years or potentially even 50 years late in achieving the SDGs, which on the face of it is quite depressing. But I think if there are a few positives that have come out of the tragedy of COVID, I think it has further accelerated interest in issues like equality, access to financial services, because you know that's really important given what's happened to employment around the world, and access to healthcare, given you know, the importance of getting basic medical service in these difficult times, and also environment. So you see the research from Harvard around co-mortalities comorbidities uh, with PM 2.5. So I think that's captured the imagination. So on the one hand, there's the hypothesis that maybe it's set us back another 10 years and, and it looks as though we were already a little bit behind time on the SDGs. But on the other hand, I'm actually incredibly optimistic that this may have accelerated the achievement of the SDGs given the, the strong interest we've seen in this around the world. It's great to hear that optimism. Part of generating optimism is often being inspired. And as regular listeners know, I'm always keen to hear uh, from my guests about an inspiring book recommendation, TV show or film that relates to sustainability issues. So, David, is there anything in particular that has inspired you either recently or at some point in your life that you would like to share with our listeners? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's lots of inspiring things out there, whether it's books or films or TV. The most recent book that I read, or the, well, I give you the last three books I read. I read Super Pumped, which was about Uber. And I read Shoe Dog, which was the uh, autobiography of Phil Knight at Nike. The most recent book that I read was Naomi Klein, That Changes Everything. And that was an interesting journey back, if you like. That was the most recent book I, I read. But 20 years ago, or maybe even more now, I read No Logo by Naomi Klein when I was an undergraduate. That really sort of opens your eyes around issues of globalization and supply chain and the way the world works. And it's always been an interest of mine is just understanding how things work. And maybe that's why I spent so long and you know, maybe you could say too long at university. But that was one of the first books that I read that was really inspiring to understand just how these things work. And the recent book that I read by her, albeit maybe it's a couple of years ago now that it was published, was equally inspiring. Not only the issues that we face, but the inspiration comes from the fact that we really can solve these issues if we put our minds to it and work together. So I think that's where the inspiration comes from that. Thank you for all of those book recommendations. It's certainly great to add to the growing list that we're getting from our readers. We are drawing to the end of our chat today. And given your industry experience, what do you think the next five years holds out for us? That's an interesting question. And whatever I've said for the next five years over the last 20 years, I've generally been wrong. <laughs> I'm optimistic around the trajectory for sustainable investing. I'm optimistic around the fact that society as a whole are focused on these issues. I'm optimistic around the fact that behaviors are changing. So if I think back to 20, 30 years ago, around issues around basic as a recycling, um, we've moved from as a society thinking this is quite difficult to thinking, actually, this is really important. And not only is it really important, we actually need to be speaking to companies to say, you should be doing better on this. So I'm optimistic around this. I'm optimistic that governments are recognizing this and we're seeing these huge commitments around the world. So I'm optimistic that we will see great attraction in this. I'm optimistic that we will get closer to solving the SDGs. I'm optimistic that we will continue this uh, path around finance being a force for good. And it sounds like a cliche when you say that, but I am optimistic that that's the direction we're, we're heading towards. And that's about both minimizing negative impact, but also maximizing the positive impact that capital is having. That's a really fantastic way to end on all this optimism. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. David brings a unique perspective from the other side of the world, and I'm really grateful to him for giving us his time. So thank you for joining us today, David. Absolute pleasure. Maybe we should speak again in five years and, and see, uh, see, how, see, where we <laughs> see are. how my projections <laughs> played out. Now that ends our discussion for today. Thank you to all of those who have taken time to listen to our series. Please do download our previous podcasts where you can find them on our website or where you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Responsible Investing Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more great content, visit AberdeenStandard.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested.
past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.